Previously on Flying the Line, we examined the crew complement debate and the wean strike. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA is pilot-led and staff-supported, and volunteer opportunities for pilot leaders and subject matter experts are at an all-time high. Training is available for many of the positions, so reach out to your MBC leaders and see where you can contribute. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 5, The Braniff Debacle, Deregulation Hits Home, Part 1. Like the Phoenix, Braniff rose from the ashes of its first bankruptcy in 1982, only to fall victim to a second bankruptcy in 1989. Questions concerning Alpa's role in the double debacle of bankruptcy one and two linger in the minds of airline pilots. What could, or should, Alpa have done? The story of Braniff's life, rebirth, and death touches the very core of every working airline pilot's experience. Every pilot remembers each intimate detail of that first job search from the initial idea of becoming an airline pilot to that first lead about a possible job to applying for a position to the first return contact from an airline. While all pilots who ever thought they might like to fly for a living probably had an idea which airline they would like to fly for, the truth is that most pilots have always taken the first job offered by any airline. On May 12, 1982, Braniff became the first major airline to go bankrupt, throwing 1,200 airline pilots out of work. An almost audible shudder shook through the ranks of the profession. Among airline pilots everywhere, the universal reaction was, there but for the grace of God go I. How many pilots working for other airlines had flirted with Braniff during their job search? How many pilots admired Braniff's sleek, sophisticated image? How many would have taken a job there had another airline not called sooner. As the first casualties of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978, the Braniff pilots are entitled to a special and unenviable place in this history. While other airlines had technically gone bankrupt, the effect of those failures on pilots was minimal because the industry was a regulated public utility with management that guaranteed a certain fixed return on invested capital. Poor management decisions seldom resulted in the total failure of a company. Under the hand of government, incompetent managers found themselves forced out by regulators, but the airlines survived. Before financial collapse destroyed an airline's credibility with travel agents and the public, the regulators would intervene, either by direct federal subsidy, coupled with crisis supervision of errant managers, or by forced merger with another carrier Direct government regulation preserved the integrity of the air transportation system. The government, after all, had created the system, so the government was responsible for seeing that it survived. The shotgun marriages of forced mergers were seldom pleasant, but they were a lot better than the fate awaiting Braniff's pilots. In 1961, the capital pilots, accustomed to a more relaxed corporate culture, found the transition to United very trying, but at least they had jobs. 
the Braniff pilots would be left with nothing, caught up in the first great test of deregulation. For the first time since the passage of the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938, airline pilots would find themselves at the mercy of free market economics. What happened at Braniff? When the airline abruptly quit flying in May 1982, the Braniff pilots were as bewildered as everybody else. In fact, the MEC chairman at Braniff, Joe Baranowski, admitted at the time that a lack of information nearly drove the MEC members to distraction. All that Braniff's pilots really knew was that the company was sending mixed signals, saying things were bad one day, only to announce later that they were good. The general uncertainty about Braniff's economic viability caused crew room bulletin boards to flourish with offers to do whatever was necessary to keep the airline flying. Many pilots openly offered to fly for free for one month. But the company had to come to the pilots with straight facts and requests for help first. Lacking full cooperation from management, the pilots of Braniff had no way of knowing just how bad the situation was or what they could do to help. This information deficit confirmed an ancient gripe among Braniff's senior pilots. Braniff never told line pilots anything, and middle managers at the point of operational contact seemed to take pleasure in ignoring any suggestion for improvement, particularly if it came from a pilot. One lesson pilots would learn was that corporate incompetence was something that they could not ignore. ALPA would have to develop its own sources of information about events transpiring in corporate suites. To do otherwise, when jobs and careers were at stake, would mean that ALPA would enter the brave new world of deregulation blind. Because of Braniff, most MECs would begin learning how to track the business side of their airlines, acting almost as shadow managements. ALPA National started its own corporate analysis, which would grow steadily during the 1980s. Pilots at many airlines, particularly those like TWA and Eastern, would spend their days anxiously monitoring corporate decisions instead of flying. After all, the pilots of an airline had infinitely more at stake than the managers running it. Golden parachutes guaranteed executives a soft landing, no matter how poorly they performed. If history teaches any lessons at all, it is that surface explanations for great events seldom reveal the truth. And yet, in Braniff's case, the surface explanations were plausible. If fuel prices hadn't skyrocketed in 1979, just as Braniff President Harding Lawrence began his spectacular post-deregulation expansion plan, maybe Braniff would become one of today's megacarriers. If rising fuel prices and economic recession had not ravaged the airline industry in 1982, maybe we would think of Braniff the same way we think of Delta today, which in some respects was Braniff's historical twin. If Lawrence had not agreed to finance his rapid fleet expansion with a burden of debt at 2% over the prime rate, Braniff might have become Delta. Are rising fuel prices, unmanageable debt, and drastic reduction in passenger traffic sufficient to explain Braniff's failure? Other airlines survived under similar circumstances. Why didn't Braniff? Braniff was an anomaly from the start, with a weak root structure and a powerful direct competitor in American Airlines. 
Braniff's weakness lay in the circumstances of its birth. Two Oklahoma brothers, Paul and Tom Braniff, founded the first incarnation of Braniff in 1928, primarily to serve oilmen who needed rapid transportation. Paul was the flyer, and Tom was the businessman. Beginning with four Stinson Detroiter aircraft, they eventually served a route that included Tulsa and Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and Wichita Falls and Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. In 1929, shortly before the Wall Street crash, they sold to Universal Airlines. The Braniff brothers' real business was insurance, not aviation. Their brief experience with running an airline had intrigued them. After the Great Depression began, airplanes were cheap and pilots plentiful. So, using two six-passenger Lockheed Vegas, the Braniffs promptly got back into the airline business in 1930. They christened the second version of their airline Braniff Airways. But they were surprised to learn that the post office had awarded all the airmail contracts to large corporations at a conference held in Washington, D.C. These conferences, while not exactly secret, were certainly low-profile and restricted to selected inside bidders, which didn't include the Braniffs. The Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 ended a statutory system embodied in the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. However, the idea of regulation began not with Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, but with his predecessor, Herbert Hoover. As Secretary of Commerce in the Harding and Coolidge administrations, Hoover worried that the same fragmented system that threatened rail transportation would cripple the new airlines. Owing to the lack of planning, the nation's rail system was inefficient and irrational. In fact, to cope with the emergency mobilization of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson nationalized the railroads to introduce some order. Hoover, a noted efficiency expert, seized control of the budding airlines through his Department of Commerce in the 1920s. He set out to build a system that would be efficient, safe, and self-sustaining without government subsidy. Once Hoover became president, he ordered Postmaster General Walter Brown to use airmail contracts. This would force the network of fiercely competitive airlines into a series of mergers and turn their operations into a real system serving the whole nation. From the beginning, Brown intended to force the smaller carriers, like Braniff, out of the airline business. Brown's reasoning was that only large, well-financed corporations could afford the initial capital outlays that would make passenger operations successful. Brown figured that, eventually, passenger service would subsidize mail operations, and the government could get out of the business altogether. But before this could happen, the airlines would need a good, heavy dose of old-fashioned cartelization under government guidance. Angry at being excluded from the system, Tom Braniff, who was well-connected politically, led a public assault on Brown's policies. The Braniff brothers, to prove they could fly more cheaply, extended their airline to serve Kansas City and Chicago. This put them directly at odds with powerful American. Sensing that he might yet come out of this business with a hefty profit, Tom used his resources and the venture capital 
of wealthy Oklahoma oilmen to keep Paul's airline alive. He promoted the greater speed of Braniff's Vegas operations, which could whisk deal-making oilmen from Tulsa to Fort Worth more quickly than the subsidized competition. Ultimately, Brown would be fully vindicated. The courts found that he had done nothing improper in laying the groundwork for the regulated mail and passenger system that FDR and the New Dealers copied almost totally. But when they first swept into power on March 3, 1933, they tried to dismantle Brown's national airline system. A series of spectacular Senate hearings, chaired by Alabama Democrat Hugo Black, offered the Braniffs a forum. Senators brought their tales of fraud in the awarding of the 1930 airmail routes. In February 1934, Roosevelt canceled the contracts and ordered the Army to fly the mail. This experiment lasted only a few months when the new Postmaster General, James Farley, reopened the mail contracts for bidding. The Braniff brothers snatched away Americans' prime Chicago to Dallas Fort Worth route. Thus, Almost from the beginning, Braniff faced a powerful enemy nursing an old grudge. Between 1934 and 1965, when Lawrence took over, Braniff was a steady, unspectacular performer. As one of the smallest majors, Braniff cultivated an intense family feeling, promoted its executives from within, and did reasonably well in competition with American for the Texas trade. Profiting from its identification with a Lone Star State, Braniff pioneered the hub-and-spoke concept at its Dallas base, much as Delta had done in Atlanta. This approach was a necessity at Braniff and Delta because neither could compete with the more prestigious Big Four of American, Eastern, TWA, and United. When the nature of the business shifted in the 1960s, the older transcontinentals would have to adapt to the hub-and-spoke system, but they also had their lucrative and extensive old city pair markets to fall back on. Aside from its Chicago-Dallas city pair, Braniff could not compete. Why did Delta make it work so well in Atlanta, and Braniff failed so miserably in Dallas? Much of the answer lies in the character of the strange, contradictory, and occasionally brilliant man who took over Braniff in 1965. Harding Lawrence learned his trade under the tutelage of Bob Six at Continental. Lawrence was a splendid deputy, bright, adventurous, constantly enthusiastic, and hardworking. Yet, something about Lawrence bothered people who worked with him. An arrogance, a wild, sometimes irrational streak, that identified him as a man who might lose sight of what's important in the game of high-stakes poker that was the airline business. As Bob Six's number two man at Continental, Lawrence was the kind of guy who had a dozen ideas a day, one of which might be good. Some viewed Lawrence as a living embodiment of the Peter Principle. A success until he reached the final rung of the corporate ladder, Lawrence would reach his level of creative incompetence as Braniff's president. At Continental, he had Bob Six's steady hand to keep him on track. At Braniff, nobody was there to rein him in. 
Next time on Flying the Line, Braniff is compelled to close its operation. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 5, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2022. All rights reserved.